0: Yeah, that plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
1: Hello, guys. So welcome with Tech with Taylor. And as promised, I've got the great DevOps Rob Barnes. So, um he's somebody that i look up quite a lot to in the devops industry so um a lot of people have been asking me you know what is devops and it felt for a long time like i was the only one doing it so it's great to have somebody that is um so well versed in devops come on the podcast so um if you would like to introduce yourself rob um you know who are you and what do you do
2: sure firstly thank you for having me on your podcast really appreciate that um so i'm rob uh, also known as devops rob um my current role is I'm a senior developer advocate for a company called HashiCorp. Uh, so I've not been there very long. Uh, I think it's been since May. Um, and before that, I was a self-employed uh, consultant. Uh, my main role there was working with my clients to extract maximum value from the cloud. Um, so a lot of that was about uh, security and uh, sort of cost controls, um, you know, I have a long career before that, you know, uh, DevOps isn't something I've always done. You know, I, I started off like most people in uh, IT help desk and yeah. moved into network engineering and systems administration. So, you know, I've I've kind of done the rounds and worn different hats uh, before I got to where I am today. So um, that's sort of a quick run through of how I became DevOps Rob in terms of uh, the role that I'm doing now.
1: Great. I mean, I would say it's similar to my story. Um, so I started in help desk as well. Um, I've always been quite keen on automation, but um, I graduated in 2014. And as you know, automation and the concept of AI was still very conceptual. And um, I would say I've since maybe 2015, I've kind of been working with cloud technologies indirectly. And I think it started with a Microsoft um, Office 365. And then um, all of a sudden, I don't know about you, but DevOps just kind of came around. So before I studied it along with like ITIL and PRINCE2 as a mythology and all of a sudden it was just a job title. So I literally went from kind of being a technical um, implementation consultant working within um, software agile delivery methods to using my software engineering and technical skills to be something called a cloud engineer which was quite bizarre to me and now it's like it's kind of like being an ITIL or PRINCE2 engineer. So I don't know I mean what's your thoughts on that? I mean how long have you kind of been working directly in the cloud? And when did you start to identify yourself as a cloud engineer?
2: Um, I'm trying to remember the year. Um, I can't actually remember the year, but I I was working for a uh, email service provider. uh, And when I joined, there was this massive project to migrate all of their services from the data center into uh, Microsoft Azure. Um, So that was kind of my first experience with the cloud. I'm going to take a stab and say that was around about 2015, maybe 2016, something like that. Um, so, I mean, some people have probably been doing it longer than me. So, but it is quite a while. Um, I never really got too hung up on the the job title. To be honest, I, I was more interested in the the skills that I was going to learn uh, in the role. Um, so, you know, they went through different reorganizations and I was called a cloud engineer. I was called a junior DevOps engineer. I was called a systems administrator, you know, yeah. but what I was doing every single day never really changed, you know? So um, yeah. yeah, I'd say probably, yeah, I, I think 2015 was probably the year um, that it all started for me uh, in terms of the cloud. And, you know, it's a different mindset when you start operating with the cloud and that took some getting used to, not just for me as an engineer, but I think the organization had a lot of uh, maturing to do as well. Yeah. And, you know, and as my experience has kind of shown me, I think all organizations kind of go through this kind of realization that the cloud requires a different mindset. And it's, it's just the natural course of things, I think.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so it's, it's kind of weird because I would say before COVID, I was working as a cloud engineer, but more on the consultancy side. So still kind of having to use um, PowerShell, Bash, scripting and Linux stuff, but also kind of consulting um, different businesses on you know what the cloud is and how to get into it. And you'll be really surprised the amount of kind of big organisations, especially like banking sector, finance and NHS, that use quite a lot of legacy systems that don't actually know what the cloud is and how it can utilize their business so um from your kind of like technical point of view would you say that you've been involved in quite a lot of migration projects or most of the clients that you've worked with are quite quite well versed in the cloud and know what they want
2: oh no no um it's (laughs) been a lot of a lot of migration projects not Here's the thing. What, what, what happens with a lot of clients is they, they think they have the expertise and the experience to take services from on-prem to the cloud and implement yeah. some kind of cloud strategy, right? Um, but the fact of the matter is, unless you have people in there that have experience who have uh, made mistakes and failed, um yeah. you're, pro- you're probably going to fall into some common pit holes as well doesn't matter how much you read about other people's stories and so on and so forth each migration project is different um so pretty much the point where i'm brought in is when people have tried something it hasn't gone well and they need to fix it and they realize they need help and normally they'll, they'll give me a call and that's where i'll come in and sort of ascertain exactly what's gone wrong and a big part of it, other than helping them fix the issue, is an education piece because, yeah, you know, as a consultant, you, you, you come in and try and help organizations uh, move forward. But you don't want it to be a situation whereby you, you leave them and then they're kind of stuck uh, or they go backwards, you know. So um, yeah. education is it's a big piece of it, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely would agree. I would say like in most of my roles as well, it's also kind of like hosting workshops and also um, not just allowing them to want to move from the cloud because it sounds cool and shiny, but also kind of going through different levels of cost um, effective ways to most importantly help them save money, because I think that's what most companies are kind of seeing the benefits. So, you know, like in regards to benefits, what would you say are the main benefits of um, DevOps? Uh,
2: well, f- well, firstly, it's, it's, I think we should probably just define what DevOps is, right? Um, so
1: yeah.
2: I'll, I'll, put, I'll put a disclaimer out there. I'm, I'm not the authority on, on what DevOps is. Uh, you know, what I say doesn't go, it's just kind of the way I see things. Right. I, I also have the belief that if you ask 10 people what DevOps is, you're going to get 10 different answers, right? And that's okay.
1: Yeah.
2: But to me, I think it's kind of a, a set of, uh, principles, uh, that make a culture, and we're talking about uh, collaboration between different teams. So typically people will say developers and operations, but it actually goes far beyond that. You know, uh, we're yeah. talking about security teams. We're talking about pretty much any stakeholder. So if you have a audit, audit and compliance department and they have a need to get some logs or metrics out of the application, they need to be involved in a conversation from the start. They need to be part of that feedback cycle, you know? So, um yeah. You know, DevOps is is a number of different things that makes a collaborative uh, software development lifecycle, and it's all about sort of uh, fast feedback. Uh, you can push out a lot of releases, and automation is an enabler of these things here. Yeah. So I think I find it odd, and even though I've I've held this job title multiple times of a DevOps engineer, I find it weird that that's actually a job. Um, exactly. Yeah. Some of the things that we do as DevOps engineers. It, it just feeds into creating a DevOps culture. It doesn't make us DevOps engineers. I don't actually know how to engineer DevOps. Like, I don't think that's a thing, you know. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, um.
1: yeah, it's it's so crazy. You said that because um, I've noticed that even through the application process. So before um, going through like being a help desk engineer to um, service delivery manager to implementation software engineering and blah blah blah. I actually was kind of like a contractor. So I had very limited company and stuff. And I would say on the side that tech is probably the only industry where you can job pop every three to six months and it wouldn't be looked down upon. But what I did notice about um, DevOps is that I can go to one company and be a cloud engineer and I can apply for another job, regardless of whether it be perm and it's totally different. So I've applied for jobs and felt blindsided because maybe I want to be a cloud engineer, but then I've applied for the job, got the interview. And I've noticed that it's kind of more like software engineering, Python related. And I'm like, okay, well, this is kind of like a senior software engineer role. And then you go for another role and they're like, okay, site reliability engineering, which is kind of more um, consultative with some technical best practices involved. So I've even noticed that, you know, that like you said, in every different company, they take the DevOps culture and the job title very differently so um, I would always advise kind of people to focus on what the job spec actually says and not the title I mean from that or saying that would you say you're more of a consultant or would you say you like happen to masterly balance being very technical and being a consultant in your day role like what's the percentage split?
2: Um, so I'll answer that question, but I just want to go back to something you said as well uh, about yeah. when you're applying for roles. So yeah, it's very important to look at the job spec, but I think equally when you're going through the the process with an organization, yeah, as much as they're interviewing you, you should be interviewing them, right? So you need to kind of qualify the things that they're saying on the job spec are in fact, what they're looking for in this role. Uh, because a lot of the time the job specs are written by people who are not the hiring managers. Um, so they don't really understand what the output is they need from this. Uh, I hate referring to people as resources, but this resource, yeah. right? This human resource. Um, so you you just kind of have to understand that things can fall down based on that. And if yeah. you go through the process and you can pick these things up through conversations in an interview, um, you also have to decide, are they a good fit for you as well as mm-hmm. they're deciding are you a good fit for us? So, you know, that's part of it. Um but, yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, what I am and uh, in terms of balance, so I'd say I'm i am quite – I'm a consultant, but I am quite technical and hands-on as well. Um, yeah. You know, uh, like you, I was uh, a contractor. I had my own limited company. Some engagements were bigger than others where I could subcontract and, you know, bring in more resources. So um, with that, you, you kind of have to wear a few different hats and yeah. – There are definitely far more technical people than me out there. You know, I am by no means the smartest person in the room and I'm completely fine with that. Uh, but yeah, I I don't shy away from the the technical side of things, but for me, I like to build the big picture and then slowly step down into the detail before we get to the weeds. And that way I I can kind of ensure that everyone's on on the same page. So a lot of people will kind of think, yeah, I'm just a consultant. Not that that's really a a bad thing, but, um, It's a process, you know. It's a process, a journey.
1: Yeah. So, how much of your job day to day involves, um, you know, coding in PowerShell, Linux, and scripting and stuff? Because I would say for me, it, like you said, it depends on the the company. But I've noticed that sometimes, like you said, because it's a process, we probably don't really get to coding until maybe it's mostly either coding in the beginning of the pro- of the project. Um, the software engineer team handles it, or I'm just kind of there to double check over everything. But there's a lot of people that want to get in DevOps and they see these big words like Linux and Bash and scripting and think, am I just going to be on the laptop all day doing that? So what would your um, kind of opinion be on that?
2: Well, right now, um, things are a lot different. It's very different for me at the moment. It's not like it was uh, maybe two, three years ago. Um, At the moment, I spend a lot of time doing workshops and building demos and tutorials and, you know, appearing yeah. on shows like this, like podcasts and so on and so forth. So I'd say probably my split is probably 50-50 at the moment. Um, okay. I think before that, as a as a consultant, I actually would argue that it was probably 60-40. Um, and that's in favor of more planning and architecture. Um, yeah, because my, that- my view is that, If you do the discovery phase right, the implementation is never easy, but it's a lot easier, right? Um, So if you've gathered all of your requirements and you've sanity checked it with the stakeholders and you've resolved any conflicts and you understand things like um, the preferred supplier list and any other kind of business constraints that you have to operate within, you can then design a solution which matches the business requirements. Um, once you have that all architected out and there's so many different ways of, of architecture and so many different views when it comes to architecture, the actual implementation, basically your, your documents, you translate that into code or you translate that into processes. And, you know, not everything has to be automated. Something should be manual. Um, yeah so, so these are like some of the decisions that you have to make. And I think there there needs to be a lot more upfront investment in this discovery phase uh, in order to have a good implementation.
1: Yeah. Great. And so at the moment um what would you say is the best cloud provider? I started on Azure and I've mostly worked within Microsoft environments so I guess I'm a bit biased in that sense. But um do they all kind of just do the same thing? It depends on the company or what's your experience on, you know, if you were a company what would you be your best or preferred cloud support
2: i am um so i have a few different views on that um so first thing i'd say is um potato potato you know they, they all yeah. pretty much do the same things um i mean I, I just like you i started off with azure as well uh, since then i've done a lot of stuff with aws and more recently some stuff with gcp um in terms of which is the best one, you know, there's things about Azure that I f- think are really, really good. Uh, but there's also some things about it that really annoy me. Um, it's the same with with AWS. Um, the things that annoy me about Azure are really good in AWS, you know, but there are some things in AWS that, you know, I just can't fathom it, how, what, yeah. <laughs> like, how things are implemented like that, you know? Yeah. So, um, so it's that, and, and same with GCP. That's probably the least mature one. So uh, you, you kind of have to understand. But I think the key thing is um, when you're picking a cloud provider, uh, this is bigger than just a decision. This is your, your now your cloud strategy. And some people's cloud strategy can stretch over a 20-year period. So you have to understand that when you're picking a cloud partner, you're, you're picking a business partner, right? Uh, you're going to be in business with, with this organization for a very long time. You're going to be so in the way that their platform works that the technical cost of moving from them to another provider is going to be too great that ultimately you're going to end up being stuck with them, right? So. And this is the other thing when I talked about people trying to move to the cloud and then think they have enough know-how to do it and then they get stuck is they don't realize the implications of the decisions that they're making. Um, so if you have sort of a cloud strategy up front and you understand why you have this strategy and how your business is going to expand and grow and what you're going to do to try and match your technology suite with that growth, Maybe you are going to go to a second cloud provider and implement something multi-cloud if that suits your your business purposes, right? So
1: yeah, hybrid environment, yeah.
2: Exactly. So I don't necessarily advocate for a particular uh, cloud environment. Sorry, cloud provider. Uh, but you know, if you're a Microsoft Gold Partner, for example, then there's little point in me as a consultant talking to you about GCP or AWS. Or if you provide certain services that are in competition with amazon for example even if it's not aws specifically then maybe you see aws as a competitor so you you wouldn't want to feed into their their income so
1: yeah
2: it's, it's, it's always has to be a business decision we as engineers we just take these business constraints and we build architecture based around
1: on them yeah. pieces
2: of information exactly
1: no that's definitely um kind of like my mindset and i think What kind of, I I don't know, like, I've obviously, I work in DevOps in a cloud space. And I think one thing that has helped propelled me in that space in my career is not just being a technical person, but also consulting, kind of just making sure that the clients aren't just going with the new buzzword. So, for instance, if you um, are currently on a Microsoft Gold Partner and you are on Office 365, it would make sense from a cost effective and time effective way to kind of maybe go to Azure. Rather than TTP, that's or Oracle, just because your competitor is. So, um, exactly. I guess it's just taking an antagonistic approach to stuff like that. So that's quite interesting. You said that. Um, what would you say about security and the um, and DevOps? Because I went to an interview and I got the job, and one of the things that they mentioned in the interview is that everyone talks about DevOps as a practice, and everyone talks about DevOps as a mythology, but. We're kind of going into a new sector of ops where it's like DevSecOps, where people are also looking at the security element of it. So I think there's now like a new branch of DevOps where we're going into cybersecurity. Um, do you implement security protocols also when you kind of go forward in regards to consultation? Um, for your from a security point of view, or is that something totally separate?
2: No, no, no. I it's, it's all the same thing. Um. So in the beginning when we 're doing the discovery phase we 're talking about gathering requirements and one of the key stakeholders there is the uh, organization security department um, so you want to understand the uh, security requirements of the organization you want to understand uh, the um, maybe the legal ramifications of your your architecture choices uh, so for example um, maybe legally you have to have a certain level of encryption for a particular type of data that the the uh, organization yeah. holds, um, or maybe it has to be hosted in a certain geographical region for legal reasons. Um, so you definitely need to shift security left. Uh, but I'm a bit funny about using that phrase there because it kind of imp- it kind of suggests that you shift it left and you kind of deal with it in the beginning and you kind of forget about it um, after that point, which is, which is just not the case. You know, security should be embedded into every single part of the life cycle, you know, from, from gathering to design, to implementation, to continuous improvement, it has to be there, you know? Uh, and just because things appear secure now, uh, doesn't mean that it's going to stay that way. You know, the the landscape is forever evolving and your, your technology stack and your security around that technology stack needs to evolve, uh, according to the new threats that it faces. So, yeah. um, yeah, I think if, if, you're, if you're not talking about security from the very beginning, I wouldn't necessarily say you're setting yourself up to fail, but you are definitely leaving yourself open because it, the cost of implemented security later is a lot harder uh, than it is if you're thinking about it, at least, from the very beginning.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And um, so let's go on to kind of like the current job market in COVID. Um, you mentioned before that you had your own limited company. So um yeah. don't know if you know, you probably do. I kind of went viral because I had um, two kind of like contracts or jobs going on. Um, as a limited contract, um, you did say that you had some contracts where you that were big enough to subcontract. Are you an advocate for kind of working two contracts um, side by side?
2: Yeah, it depends, you know, it depends. Uh, so if I'm trying to start up a bigger type of consultancy where I'm looking to employ consultants and absolutely you want you want to drive in as much business as you can and yeah. you want to be able to kind of fill those gaps in the market you know um and to me some some of the bigger contracts I've had I saw it as an opportunity to to do those things uh, but then you just have to question when when you start to look at what you're doing every single day with your time and how long yeah. the day is on, you just start to question what is it that you want from life you know um yeah <laughs> So ultimately it's it's I mean I'd love to do that if I if I was partnering up with the right people I'd love to do that but me as an individual um I don't have everything it takes to do it by myself you know and yeah. to be honest there's a lot of things out there that it's hard for someone to achieve by themselves it's always better to come together with people of different mindsets so you can challenge each other and you can share the load and you know you can help each other yeah. optimize so um you know I, I don't necessarily advocate for it or I'm against it. You know, you, you've got to do what works for you at the end of the day. Uh, but what I would say is that every time you take on an engagement, the way that you leave it is, is your reputation and
1: that, yeah.
2: that's, yeah, that's your chance for repeat business. So it's your chance to get new business because people talk, right? Um, so you want to make sure that you're not spreading yourself too thin. If you're going to take on more than one contract, so you do really need to make sure you're delivering uh, against your statement of works. Uh, yeah. And once you do that, then you know t- take on as many as you can comfortably deliver. And um, for me, uh, I'd say it's one at the moment. Um, things change, uh, but at the moment, I could I could only dedicate myself to one client at a time.
1: Yeah, I think I got away with it in the beginning because there were two different kind of like time zones, and one was a normal kind of nine to five, and the other one was more project based. But um, going on, like you said, unless I want to build a consultancy, um, like you said, it's not just about getting as much money from contracts is also about fulfilling the work to a certain standard so um it would be nice to earn 10k a day but i think you know like you said it's just about um saving your reputation doing the job to the best of your standard if that exactly,
2: makes sense. exactly.
1: right and um so are you currently perm at the moment then
2: i am yes so um so i work for HashiCorp at the moment um which is you know a friend of mine actually predicted it would happen because a lot of my engagements were about implementing a security product called Vault, which is made by HashiCorp. Um, I didn't really plan my career that way. It just kind of happened that it's something that a lot of organizations needed and there's yes. big shortage in skill sets when it comes to Vault. Um, so, you know, a friend of mine said to me, I, t- I took on this really big contract with a company I'm not allowed to name. And um he said to me when I took that contract, he said, you know what, after this job, you know, HashiCorp's going to come calling and the kind of money they're going to throw at you, you're not going to be able to say no. Yeah, And I was just like, whatever. Mate, not even four months into the contract, that's that happened, you know. No way. <laughs> yeah, it happened. And, you know, uh, then COVID came around and, so even though I was talking to them and I was quite excited about it, I was thinking, do I really want to give up my f- sort of independence? You know, the fact that yeah. I work for myself, I, I choose who I work for, I choose when I want to work, and, you know, I have yeah. complete control. Um, so the, the question was, do I really want to give that up? Um, yeah. But ultimately, it's, it's all about the environment that you're going into. Um, now, the main reason why I liked working for myself is uh, I probably had a lot of uh, not-so-good environments that I worked in. So I can create my own environment. Um, yeah. you know, at HashiCorp, the environment is, is, is really cool. Uh, you got really good people. Uh, which I knew a lot of them before I joined, anyway, just through the open source community. Yeah. Um, so I don't I don't really feel like I've lost out anything. I feel like if anything, I've gained, and that works for me right now. Um, so I don't really have an ego about sort of being self employed and you know giving it up. It's the best thing for myself. It's the best thing for my family at the time. And you know, COVID's happened, and you know you start to think about um, people's budgets, you know, the people that will bring me on had project budgets and all of a sudden these budgets are being cut because their income's gone down and people still need my my company services. Uh, Probably not. Um, It's not a priority. Uh, Survival is the priority. So Equally, I had to make the same kind of business decision, if you like, for myself and for my family. So joining Hashicorp was definitely the right thing for me to do at the right time. And um, I'm actually struggling to see myself leaving at the moment because it's just I have the perfect work-life balance at the moment.
1: Yeah, that sounds um, absolutely great. I think before being a contractor by trade, luckily for me, I kind of was in. I kind of got the perm bug um, be- just about two weeks before we kind of formally went into lockdown. And I think. Um, yeah, the money from contractor perm is can be quite a job, but the company were nice and accommodated to somewhat almost match that. But I think as well, like, um, it does depend on the environment, and that's what kind of led me straight after uni to go into contracting because I felt like it was just the best way for me to go into environment, be less attached, and um, yeah, so that just seemed great. Um, so one final last question, um, so what do you believe um the current job market is like um how would you advise people at the moment to kind of like get into devops
2: gee so i mean i'm not i'm not i haven't really this is really weird for me actually but i haven't really looked at the job market like that um
1: yeah
2: what i do have is, is my twitter feed right and i'm aware that my, <laughs> it's just a sample size of, of the industry uh but it seems like a lot of a lot of uh, good engineers uh, have lost their jobs they've been made redundant um And I'm not quite sure how quickly some of these engineers are finding new roles. I've seen some people saying they've been out of work for six months and, you know, that's, it's crazy to me. I've never gone more than two weeks without a job, you know, since I've been, it's maybe things are are a a little tougher at the moment uh, because of that. Um, So the advice I'll give is kind of not really COVID advice. It's kind of pre COVID. uh, So I'm not really sure if it's still relevant, but, I mean, anyone that's looked at my LinkedIn or seen my CV will know that I've hopped around from job to job uh, when I was permanent uh, and even contractors. And yeah. the key for me was to to make an investment in in upskilling, right? So I'd look at a job role and from that job role, I would decide, okay, what of this job role am I interested in picking up skills-wise? And then when yeah. I go into the interview, I really grill them on those things there. And sometimes you can ascertain is that 10% of a job or is that 60% of a job? You know, and then based on that, I'd make the decision. And I'm telling you, if I've been there three months, four months, and I've learned that skill and there's nothing more for me to extract from the company in terms of skills, I'm gone. I move perm, on.
1: Is that perm and contract?
2: Perm and contracts. Like I Do you know what,
1: like that is so similar to me. Um and after, I've noticed that some recruiters are kind of just like, you know, what well, spot on, this really helps your career, you you know, you're 27 and you've got like five and a half to six years experience. But then I've noticed that some recruiters just don't like that, like, oh, but you, you've hopped around. And so how do you kind of like combat that? I don't get it as much, but I know that some recruiters are a bit touchy on that.
2: Yeah, I've heard that. I mean, firstly, you know, um, I, I don't really care about the recruiters, you know, that they're, they're, they're kind of, a means to an end for us. They kind of connect us with opportunities. Um yeah. so it doesn't really matter what they like at the end of the day. What they what they like more than anything is commission. So I understand that. <laughs> uh, so as long as I'm a solid candidate, um, they will put me forward. Right. So that's all I concern myself with. So when they start to ask some of these questions, you know, I don't really have to explain myself to them, you know. It's just a case of look, this is my skill set, this is my portfolio, this is what I've achieved. Would your clients yeah. be interested or not? Because I guarantee you. There's a whole bunch of other clients out there that will be interested. So we can start this conversation or, or not, you know, um, but it's not just recruiters. You know, I've had it from, from hiring managers. Um, I've, I've been into interviews where they will look at the, they'll look at my CV and they'll look me dead in the eye and say, look, well, you spent this amount of time in this place and then three months here and then eight months here. And you know, it doesn't exactly scream longevity. So I'm like, you know, uh, well, if you look at my impact in that time there, that's what it screams. It screams impact. Yeah know so um the the reason why i'm sat here in front of you today is because that impact has given me the skills that you are interested in you know so at the end of the day yeah yeah, if if you're going to create an environment that's going to encourage me to stay for a longer period of time then well done to you because i'm easily bored so if you can keep me (laughs) stimulating, you know then exactly i don't really i don't really um I don't really understand this sort of looking down on, on people for for doing what's right for them. Because when you flip it on, on its head, an organization will employ you. And three months into that, if for whatever reason, it's not a good fit for you to remain employed with them, they will terminate your contract. Even if it's not legal, they'll find a way to pay you off or whatever it is so that you just go, right? Right they are always going to look out for number one. So there's no way that I'm going to be criticized for doing the same. You know, I'm, I'm in my own business, you know, I'm, I'm in the DevOps Rob business. And if you want me to be in your business, you've got to be in the DevOps Rob business too. The moment yeah, that relationship is that. kind of not exclusive. I, I, that's it. We just break ties. You know, it's no hard feelings or anything like that. And I'll go and find a new relationship somewhere else.
1: Yeah. I think that's the approach that a lot of people have. I mean I would say because of that mentality I would definitely say that contracting or kind of allows you to gain a bit more skills and it kind of matures you especially coming from my point of view straight from uni but then there are some people that say you know maybe you're you're only on the salary that you want because you're a job hopper. I mean how do you kind of um yeah well, I guess you kind of answered that already. I guess the next question is um and
2: final question i'll just tap into you you are on the salary you're on because you are a job upper right um Mm -hmm. you you are on that and i don't see why that's a bad thing you know at the end of the day uh, organizations have this funny view where they don't want to give people pay rises beyond a certain percentage they don't look at the number they look at percentages right so Mm -hmm. they'll say we'll give you a maximum of say for argument's sake a seven percent increase right even though that seven percent is nonsense. And if you look at what pay increase you would get by moving to another company, yeah, (laughs) exactly. You know, you've gone from, from 7% to maybe a 26% increase or something like that. Right. So, you know, why would a business do something that's not in their financial interest? Right. Equally, why would I do something that's not in my financial interest? You know? So I've had these negotiations with companies uh, more times than I can recall. And ultimately, very few have decided to pay me what my market value is, you know, and those ones have stayed until the market value increased even more, or I wasn't learning anything. So there's no point me staying there on more money because, you know, it's too short sighted to think like that. So, um, you know, I just think that it's, it's, there's no point really looking at anyone and sort of trying to understand why they're on a salary or anything like that. I mean, if you're trying to get like inspiration so that you can increase your own salary, then yeah, that's one thing. But, i don't, i don't I don't really like this narrative of uh you you're only on this because you've done that or you're only on this because you do this and that that's you know if you're if if you're comfortable doing that Innovation. yourself then, yeah, yeah then, <laughs> then do that if you're not comfortable with it then don't, don't be watching other people you know you you do you do what's right for you and your family and I'll do what's right for me so that's kind of my take on that
1: great and how would you say your experience has been so far as a black person in um the tech industry
2: uh so I don't really have any major horror stories, um, yeah, to share, you know, um, I've, I've been, I think maybe it's because of my approach with, with, um, the way that I interview companies, I can quickly sniff out certain things and, you know, um, there's certain red flags in the process that I kind of look for, um, you know, like when I, he shows this attitude that you you need them more than they need you, like that's to me is a red flag. So I think these kind of things have helped. Um, but I also recognise, even though there are challenges, me being a black man, I'm still a man, right? So
1: yeah, yeah.
2: I also have privilege, right? Um, yeah. Because some of the things I hear from from black women, I mean, this is not even about software engineering. My own wife, uh, we have last year went through a, a huge battle with one of our one of our employers and. That was all because uh, she was a black woman, and wow. she was doing what they wanted her to do as a black woman. They just wanted her to sit there being underpaid uh, for yeah. a role, which they clearly advertise is paying more, right? Um, so I, I've I've seen that firsthand, and what I will say is that the kind of inequality that we see in the industry. So we're talking about racism, uh, sexism, you know, any kind of marginalized approach, which is uh, driven by biases. And in some cases, hatred, it's not really about the industry. It's a reflection of society, you know? So we we need to fix society's problems before we can start talking about software engineering or start talking about, it's like when they say racism in football, it it doesn't make sense to me, you know, because, you know, (laughs) It's it's people from society that come, that that like football, you know, and they're bringing their racism into football or they play football or whatever it is. Right. So it's no different with software engineering or retail or whatever it is. You know, um, and some of the things I've heard, like, especially black women, um, talk about, man, I can't even relate to it. You know, I can't even relate to it. You know, when i kind of repeat these stories to my wife, as she's finishing off my sentences and I'm like, wow, like, you know.
1: Yeah. It's crazy out here, especially when you're young, black, and a woman, I think I face sexism, racism and ageism. But that's just another story for another day. And I guess as I advanced more in my career, um, because I became not a master of what I'm doing, but I could like have like I could prove I, could, I can do my job, I kind of did face it less. So I just wanted to pass the mantle on and help other people, which didn't go to plan initially, but you know, we move. <laughs> so um yeah
2: yeah absolutely it's 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 one of those things that oh, the disclaimer I add when we talk about these topics is you know when we talk about diversity equality, and inclusion uh it's a very complicated uh subject, and I'm not really qualified to speak on it uh, I'm definitely not an expert or anything like that. All I have is my first hand experiences and my second hand experiences uh and that, those those I can share right um but you know in terms of when people ask me questions like how do we solve this you know I I can't help with that. I I don't know how to solve this. There there are people that that are really good at influencing leadership and changing strategy and policy and approach to solve these problems. And I'm just not one of them. It's not my skill set, you know? So, you know, that's, I kind of take that stance when we talk about these, these topics here.
1: Great. Well, I think that would be all for me. Thank you so much for, you know, coming on the show. I've been wanting to get you for quite some time, but um, I finally got set up now. So, um, if anybody wants to contact you, um, is there any kind of like email address or YouTube or your own podcast link that you'd like to share or perhaps your LinkedIn? Uh,
2: yeah, well, I think Twitter is probably the best place to get at me. I'm, I'm, I'm really active on Twitter. So uh, my Twitter is at DevOps underscore Rob. Um, DMs are open, so feel free to reach out to me. Uh, I'm always happy to talk about tech or just life in general, you know. So, uh, yeah, just make sure you give me a follow and I'll follow back. Woo!
1: Thank you. And that will be it, guys. Um, join us next week, or me next week. We'll have another special guest that I'll release midweek. And um, thanks for listening.
2: Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel,
0: founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.